Let's pray and then we will uh, begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Sunday mornings. We thank you for the Lord's Day, a day set aside for worship, fellowship, hearing of your word. God, I pray for wisdom for all of us as we consider these really, really nitty-gritty practical issues to close out our series on relationships. We pray that all of our relationships, friendship, and romance would bring glory to you, that we'd rely on you and give you thanks for all of your goodness to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, guys, remember, it's going to be just me and Amy up here for a Q&A. So this week, be thinking of questions you want to ask. And then we'll get together, and for an hour, you'll have the opportunity to just pelt us with questions, okay? And if you don't want to ask a question out loud, then I will write my phone number up there, and you can text it to me, and I'll have my phone up here, and I'll read the text questions and that's how we'll run things. So one hour this week, you want to be thinking of any questions that you want to ask either myself or Amy or both of us, and we will be here for, uh, in your service for that hour, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. Okay? That's next week. I might even send out a reminder to remind you, be thinking of questions. All right? So that's the plan for next week. So this, today, is the formal closing of our relationship series. And the message is a few vital questions, trying to catch all the questions that I didn't answer throughout the last several weeks. It's been, we've been in this series for a while because we've had a fair amount of interruptions. So we've been here for a while, but I, I think it's, well, I, I didn't go back and count how many weeks we've actually had a message on it. But from just receiving feedback from you, I've heard that it's been helpful, so that's encouraging. And of course, this is an ongoing uh, reality for you. And so we want, I always, the door's always open to talk about these issues at more depth and more length. So don't ever neglect to talk to me if you have more questions. But let's just go through these questions and then I'll leave op, uh, room open for clarifying Q&A at the end of today. But we have 15 questions on here. Some of will be, the answers will be longer, some will be shorter. Maybe even a one word answer. <laughs> we'll see. First, I want to open up with, can I date an unbeliever? Because actually, this, the answer to this question is going to color some of the remaining questions, or how I answer the remaining questions. The first question is, can I date an unbeliever? And you might be thinking, well, Derek, why would you begin with this? Is this something that someone has asked specifically? Well, I can't recall when this specific group has asked this question, and I didn't get this in the, the survey. But this is a question that I have gotten on a regular basis ever since I've been in ministry, starting with middle school up till today. Okay, it's just a regular question that I get from believers. And so perhaps it'll strike a chord with you, or maybe it'll strike a chord with uh, you because you know people who are wrestling with this question and you need to be able to walk them through the, the issue and the, the biblical answer. So here's what I typically hear from people who uh, believe they can walk down this path of dating an unbeliever. They believe that they can do this because the Bible doesn't forbid dating an unbeliever. Or number two, their romantic relationship can serve as a means of evangelism. So their boyfriend or girlfriend is an unbeliever. So they're thinking, hey, I can date them. They can come to know Christ, and that's good. That's evangelistic. Or they think they can date this unbeliever because their situation is unique for whatever, uh, whatever reason or a combination of some or all of these. So is dating in the Bible? And so first of all, you have to come out and be very clear that the Bible doesn't, strictly speaking, forbid dating an unbeliever. And you might be thinking, whoa, whoa, what? Really? No, it doesn't, because the Bible doesn't talk about dating at all, right? There's, there's 
there's two categories, and you could add a third if you had betrothal, but the two categories in the scripture are marriage and singleness. There's just not a lot about dating, this phase of uh, a, a man and a woman figuring out if they should, should be married. Just not there. And we've talked about the genius of scripture at this point. This allows for people to come together in a multitude of ways. What matters is not so much how it begins, but how it proceeds, and it's not so matter how, much, how you came together, but how the wedding, I mean, how the marriage goes post-wedding. Okay, that's what scripture is mainly concerned about. But we do, if we're in the setting where you can freely choose who to marry, then we want to think biblically and have wisdom about that situation. But strictly speaking, the Bible doesn't address whether or not a believer should date an unbeliever. It is, however, clear on whether a believer should marry an unbeliever. So just in terms of methodology, when you're thinking about questions that the Bible doesn't address specifically or forbid or condone specifically, what you do want to do is you want to begin by answering the questions that the Scripture does answer clearly. So, backing up a little bit, strictly speaking, the Bible doesn't talk about dating an unbeliever. What it does say very clearly is that Christians are forbidden from marrying an unbeliever. Okay, and this is made clear in a couple of texts. We've mentioned one of them often, 1 Corinthians 7.39. The woman, and, and by implication the man, is free to marry whomever she wants, only what? What's the only qualification? Only in the Lord. Okay, and then 1 Corinthians 6.14 talks about Christians not being allowed to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And that idea of un, being unequally yoked, uh, Paul goes on to say, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6.14, he takes this imagery of unequally yoked, this, this farming imagery. It's having two oxen on the same set of yoke. And if you have one that is stronger, more energetic, maybe younger, it's able, in, having no reference to age gap, we'll talk about that in a second, but uh, maybe, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you have this one ox who is stronger, younger, uh, more energetic, pulling at a different pace than the older less energetic, maybe uh, an oxen that has just less strength or whatever it might be, then you're going to have a lot of problems in that actual plowing because you have a lot of working against each other. They can't have this unequally yoked situation because of how much friction it's going to cost. And then Paul goes on to give these questions in, in asking this, he says, What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord with, does Christ have with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? And the answer to all of those questions is none whatsoever. So you can't have this situation where you're yoking someone intimately, a believer, with an unbeliever. And this doesn't, not just marriage, this can be other kinds of relationships, but this would include marriage because of the intimacy that marriage has. And let me just sh show you why this is the case. Just consider for a moment the, the folly of being unequally yoked when you are a believer and you're dating, when you are a believer and you're dating an unbeliever. Just think about the differences between you two. You have opposing masters. You have opposing worldviews. You have opposing sources of wisdom. You have opposing aims in life. You have opposite eternal destinies. You are in the spirit, they are in the flesh. You are a slave of righteousness, they are a slave to sin. You are led by the spirit, they are led by the God of this world. You are alive in Christ, they are dead in sin. 
So just step back for a moment if you're pondering dating an unbeliever and just consider the stark gulf that exists between you. How can you possibly be equally yoked with someone with whom you share uh, zero spiritual, uh, spiritual realities in common, right? So we have an explicit text that says you're only to be married in the Lord, and then you have this text about being unequally yoked, which would reasonably apply to marriage. And so people respond like this. Well, they say, well, my situation is unique. You know, they, they may hear all this, but my situation is unique. And what you fail to ask is unique to what? Unique to what? Unique in the sense that some, your uh, situation will turn out different? You can't guarantee that. And based, given on the testimony of others, it's an unlikely outcome that your relationship is unique. That somehow, through what you're doing right now, your uh, boyfriend or girlfriend will come to the Lord, be born again, and grow into a mature young man or young woman of God. Rarely is this the case. Uh, unique in the sense that somehow you are exempt from obedience. Any assumption that connects exemption from obedience to a particular circumstances is usually a sign that you are in the throes of self-deception. Unique in the sense that you've, no one has ever faced this kind of decision. No, this temptation, like all others, is one that is common to man, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The truth is that your situation is not unique at all. So that's not a good objection. Number two is, if we break up, my boyfriend or girlfriend will never have another Christian influence in their life. That's a pretty common one. And let me just very, be very clear. If you are dating an unbeliever presently, uh, what I do hope is that you recognize that this is not fitting for the believer, but also that your desire for their salvation is a good desire. No one is disputing that. That is a good and commendable desire. But you also have to realize that God's commandments all work in harmony together. He will never ever require you to obey one commandment at the expense of another. So your desire for their salvation is good. But God has provided the means for which that person to hear the gospel, experience the call to salvation through the gospel in means other than just you. And in fact, you remaining in that relationship may even be confusing because they're starting to see that you value the relationship more than you value that Christ you claim to follow. So that can lead to just confusion. You must learn to obey the Lord, trust in His commandments are good and harmonious, and that He is sovereign over your boyfriend or girlfriend in terms of their salvation. It's not ultimately up to you if your boyfriend or girlfriend is saved, and you don't need to date or marry them in order to evangelize them. Pray that the Lord would raise up more uh, laborers to go into the harvest. So, although Scripture doesn't strictly forbid a believer from dating an unbeliever, I think we can see that, at the very least, I, I don't conceive how a believer, knowing what they know now, based on what we just talked about, how you can enter in such a relationship in faith or in a good conscience. And rarely, rarely have I seen it turn out well. In fact, what you want to do is you probably want to go find those people who chose to disobey the Lord up to this point, get married, and then have them explain to you how hard their marriage is and how much they regret marrying an unbeliever, which was preceded by dating that unbeliever. They are sadder and wiser now, and you should listen to them if you're tempted to move in this direction. Okay? So I, I wanted to begin with that statement 
or with that question, even though I haven't heard it from you specifically, I did want to bring it up because this is such a common issue that I have dealt with over and over in ministry. Okay? And it is a temptation and will be a temptation if you have strong desires for marriage but you don't see a prospect on the horizon. You will justify just about anything to be in that uh, relationship. And I hope that you'll consider what we have just uh, uh, talked about if that is a temptation. The Lord is good and we have to trust that His plans are good for us. I understand that you may feel fear, loneliness, and p- the potential of never being married. I totally get that, right? But a good conscience and a happy walk with Christ is infinitely better than what grasping at a relationship will ever get you. Listen to this promise from Psalm 84:11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That may be marriage, or it may not be. But ultimately, you will not be lacking in any good thing because of your gracious Creator. Okay. Number two, what about online dating? What about online dating? As far as I can tell, the Bible doesn't forbid online dating as such. Okay? I, I, don't, I, can't, I can't see that it does. It just doesn't say, how, say much about how Christian men and women are, are to get together, just like we've, we've noticed. But I think we need to consider both the promise and the peril of online dating so we can think through it with some clarity. Okay? So just a few thoughts for you. First, you must, in, in terms of this idea of online dating, you must eliminate without hesitation those apps or websites that are geared towards helping people merely hook up. And there are those apps and websites. It's just, there are. They exist. And you know which ones they probably, they are. Okay? You have to eliminate those from even the consideration. Those are not what I consider uh, legitimate means of online dating. They are geared towards satisfying illicit desires in a way that people perceive as inconsequential. Try to get as much pleasure without, with the least amount of responsibility as you can, and we know, you should know, we should have the eyes to see that that actually decimates and devastates not only people's relationships but individuals themselves. So we have to completely set aside, that's not even a category to consider. And those who have designed those apps and those websites will be judged unless they turn from Christ and repent uh, from what they have done and, and send out a social media message that what they did was wrong and then eliminate all, the, eliminate all that they've created if they're able to. So let me just be clear. The, the, the folks that have created those kinds of means of fulfillment of illicit desires like that, they will be judged. The Scripture promises that. The promise of online dating is that it can provide a Christian with a larger group of people from which they can select a spouse. Right? Isn't that the promise of online dating? In cases where a man or woman in a church is in a church where there are very few eligible members of the opposite sex, this can be a helpful resource. And I know there are churches like that. I've been in churches like that. Small little churches. There's just not a lot of, there's just, there may be, you may be one of three other young, adult, young adults and that's all there is, right? So this can, can provide a greater selection. And so it can be a helpful resource in that sense. Online dating also helps you to select or enables you to select specific criteria for the people in whom you might be interested. And so the compatibility question we've talked about can be answered before the dating process begins. And so maybe it's a little more convenient in that sense. 
right? So there is some promise to online dating, and I, just to you know, lay my cards out on the table, I, I don't forbid it because I just don't think Scripture forbids it outrightly. But there is peril in online dating. Let me just give you a few uh, hooks to hang your thoughts on on this point. First, the availability of multiple potential partners in the online dating forum can entice people to set their gaze outside the local church as their default dating posture. It's just the default now. You're not even considering people in your midst because you know you have access to a greater pool of people. You just, and, and that has to have an effect on us, right? It just has to. Maybe, you don't even, maybe it's imperceptible that you realize, you, it's imperceptible that it's having this effect on us. But it has to. It's, 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 it's similar to the, the phenomena of social media, uh, mobile social media to, to begin with. We can all be in here together, bodies next to bodies, and yet connecting with people that are not here and therefore not connecting at all with one another. Similar kind of thing, you walk into a church, you know that you have access to a wide array of people out there somewhere, and therefore you're not even, you don't even really care to, to meet anyone here because, well, you don't need to, right? So I think it can be imperceptible in that sense, and we need to be aware of it. Again, I don't think it's, it's a reason to, to, to forbid something like this, but you just need to know what it's doing to you, imperceptibly perhaps. Maybe not, but just to be aware. Um, I wanted to address a verse in Proverbs, and I meant to... Oh, here we go. Just a, just a verse to consider um, in, this, in this area. Proverbs 17, 24 says, The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. You might be thinking, what does that have to do with online dating? Well, I think you can start to see if you just consider for a moment. It is the mark of foolishness to never be all at where you're presently at. Always looking beyond, always looking for, where it's looking for something else. Where is it at? Where's satisfaction? Where can I find it? Well, it's not here. It's not in my proximity. It's over there somewhere. And it's foolish because that, you, there's always another horizon. It doesn't, if you see the horizon, you go over to that horizon, guess what is now? There's another horizon, right? There's always another end of the earth to go and find. And so I commend that to you as a verse to ponder in this area of online dating. Again, I'm not forbidding it, not saying you can't use it, but just to recognize what it can do to us. And the, the mark of foolishness is always looking elsewhere than where you are presently at. Second, and this is related, online dating allows you to treat romantic relationships in, in what will become the most important relationship in your in life, your most, most important earthly relationship that you have it can allow you to treat it consumeristically. On many, on many dating platforms, the very act of online dating requires that you consider multiple dating profiles. I had to tell Amy this. I said, I have something to confess to you. I was checking out online dating uh, platforms this week. <laughs> so now she knows. You told me already. I didn't just make it. Right. Not yet. I told her earlier. Yeah, not just now, but earlier. So she would, she would know. Um, and I was just really happy to be married. So that was... 
All right. Uh, okay. On many dating platforms, the very act of online dating requires that you consider multiple dating profiles, usually by yourself, isolated from other relationships, where you're measuring physical appearance with spiritual convictions, interests, and other factors, until you find the one that you, are, that you like and are willing to connect with or to pursue. And in some ways, some significant ways, I'm afraid, this is similar to online shopping. Then once you've made a decision or a selection, you connect with that person for the first time in a digital format because these initial phases of the relationship are taken out of the face-to-face -face setting and are handled digitally, they pose very low risk. Which I think is what is attractive to some folks who are unwilling to talk to people face to face. If, you're, if you finally meet in person, it doesn't work out, you can move along to the next potential partner. And so again, just to consider how this can provoke and promote a consumeristic approach to relationships. Now, not every, from what I understand, not every dating forum is like this. And when I refer to online dating, I also am referring to the uh, services that provide uh, kind of matchmaking services, similar kind of thing. And I, and I, and I recognize there's a spectrum here because you're going to have less of a consumeristic approach when you use like a dating service than when you're on an online platform that has multiple profiles that you check through. So I, I get that. There's a spectrum. And so hopefully even these principles help you consider the, the spectrum of what's available. Third, online dating is what I like to call relationally abrupt. You have no relational context with this person. And unlike romantic relationships that come out of corporate friendships, your very first interaction with this person is already within the sphere of romance. That's why you've decided to get together. I mean, it, it may be the, the small beginnings, but that's what the, the kind of the understanding is. That's why you agreed to meet. While this isn't a deal breaker, it certainly can create awkwardness, high pressure, and uncertainty because you don't know this person at all. So just another thing to consider. So I don't content, condemn legitimate dating sites, but I do think Christians need a lot of wisdom and the local church for accountability to use them well, right? They're not just neutral uh, resources that you just can jump into without any thought or consideration. And I hope to, that you've seen that through those various principles that we considered. The temptation to constantly look away from the local church. Number two, treating relationships consumeristically. And three, the, real, the reality of relational abruptness. Okay? All right. So that's online dating, and we can answer more questions about that in a little bit. Number three, what about visiting other churches to find someone to marry? That was another question I got. I'm just, these questions that you have on your paper, they're just cut and pasted from the survey. I didn't doctor them up. I just, in fact, there's one on here that I didn't doctor up at all, and specifically so that you could um, hear what this person was saying. So, what about visiting other churches? So again, I don't think Scripture forbids visiting other churches. I mean, we're all brothers and sisters in the Lord. There are other great churches here in the Bay Area. And you want to go and visit, there's nothing forbidding you from doing that. But the way this question is phrased leads me to believe that finding someone to marry is taking precedent, perhaps, over your faithfulness to your local church. If you're regularly visiting other churches to find someone to marry, you're making the church, it seems, a means to find a spouse rather than the church being the place where you worship God corporately and serve and bless the saints. This, boy, it just, this sounds like potential for idolatry and the misuse of the local church. You're using the local church as a means to a greater end. 
Also, if you're regularly visiting other churches, how are you serving faithful in your local congregation? Maybe you can work that out, and there are ways to work that out. I know that there are certain um, venues that are, open on, that are open on certain days of the week, and you can, you can attend those while also being very faithful here at CBC. So it, it can happen. I, I get that. Uh, but what is your strategy, I think, is the question I would ask. If you don't find someone at that particular church, will you visit other churches until you do? Again, this raises the question of motives and whether or not a Christian should be using the local church as a means to an end like this. So, again, is it forbidden? No. Is it possible? Yes. Are there things to consider? Absolutely. And these are the things I would have you consider. As I've already said, Many times throughout this series, ideally, the local church is, I think, the place where it's the, the best place for uh, relationships like this to spring up. It doesn't have to be the only place. But I, I hope that I've argued and persuaded some of you to at least consider that there is great wisdom and health that, that grows up in these relationships in, the, in, a, in a corporate church setting, where that corporate church is healthy and teaching truth and that and the people are growing spiritually. Okay. Uh, rather than making your first move to visit other churches, start considering the people in your midst and continuing to pray that the Lord will add to our numbers here at CBC and the Yopros. And boy, I tell you what, he's, he's certainly been doing that over the last couple of years. It's been awesome. And you guys are just a fantastic group and so many great things going on in this group. Number four, what about unbelieving parents who do not approve of whom, who I am dating? Now, Amy and I have dealt with this with, uh, not, with, <laughs> not with us, ourselves. Uh, I, Amy's parents approved of me and my parents approved of Amy's. But uh, we're talking about situations, and Amy and I have dealt with, where the, either the boyfriend or the girlfriend was not fully embraced by the family. And in some cases, not, not even, uh, not, not fully embraced, but kind of, pushed aside saying, you shouldn't even be dating this person. We do not approve. Okay, so this can be a very challenging situation for people, especially if you're a believer and your parents are not, because they're going to have totally different, potentially, they're going to have very different priorities than you are in looking for a, a spouse. So let me just say a few things about this. There may be times when their concern is warranted. Okay, so let's say you're a believer and you've, you're a, a, a Christian young man and you found a, a Christian young lady and your parents are unbelievers, there may be that their concern is warranted. The first thing you want to do is, the first thing you want to remember to do is honor your parents. Even if your parents are unbelievers, that command still applies to you to find ways to honor them. Honor your father and your mother. And if, and if they have concerns, be willing to hear them out. This will show that you respect them and are seeking to honor them. This will also allow you to determine if their concerns are valid. Even though they're unbelievers, they may have legitimate concerns. Just flipping it for a second, let's say you're a young woman dating a young, young guy and your parents don't approve because he doesn't have a job and he doesn't really seem to want to work and he doesn't seem like he's someone who's going to work very hard to provide for you. He's a lot of fun to be with, but he doesn't seem to have his life together. And they're unbelievers, but at least they can perceive that, and that's obvious. And if that's a concern, you can't just raise the, well, he's a Christian flag and, and just w w uh, wash over all their concerns. No, their concerns are legitimate. So they might be, uh, and you might need to listen to them because they know you uh, well. Um, 
So they might, their concerns might be legitimate. However, it may become clear that their concerns are not valid, and this is what we've seen a fair amount. Perhaps they don't like your boyfriend, ladies, because he is a different ethnicity. That still happens today. That is still happening to this very day. Or he doesn't have a prestigious enough job. Or he didn't go to a prestigious enough school, or just not the school that the parents went to. Perhaps they don't like your girlfriend because she is from a different country or because she has complementarian views about home and family life or because she doesn't seem to be intellectual enough or, or she's too intellectual. Okay? These are things that I've seen and none of them are valid. So to the degree that parents are raising concerns that are not valid or not in keeping with biblical principles, you want to honor them, you want to respect them, you want to hear them out, but as far as I can tell from Scripture, you're not obligated to yield to their requests, preferences, and demands in some cases. Now guys, it will be much easier for you when you meet with disapproval from your parents if they've got unreasonable and uh, illegitimate concerns, it will be much easier for you to disagree with them and continue to move on in a, a relationship with a godly young woman if in fact you are now on your own and no longer under their financial care, okay? Uh, the man is put to leave father and mother and to cleave to his wife. And you'll just find that it's a lot easier to disagree with them on this point and move, on, and move ahead in your relationship if, in fact, you're no longer under their financial care. It's not impossible. I'm just saying it's, it's easier. But nevertheless, in a situation where parents are bringing up illegitimate concerns you are not, uh, that, are, that are not biblically, I, I don't believe that you're under any obligation to uh, abide by those in terms of your relationship with someone of whom they don't approve, okay? You do want to honor them, you do want to hear them out, but if you are in a uh, relationship with a promising godly young woman or uh, 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 flip it around, a godly young man, then you are able to continue in that. And in many cases, we, have, we know one in particular where uh, the parents were kind of won over and they were won over by the, the godliness of the, of the couple. And so um, you want to, to, to honor and respect and appeal, and you do want their blessing. Ultimately, you don't need it. Okay? All right, number five, how do I interact with unbelieving men at work? Boy, that's a challenging question. This is an important question because you as a woman may be pursued by an unbelieving male colleague at any given time. Even if you're a believer or not. It just... If you're a believer and you're working together and they get to know you, that's, that's, a, that's a possibility, isn't it? You want to be careful that your conduct around other men doesn't give them the indication that you are interested in a relationship. But even if you are careful and conscientious, it doesn't mean you're rude. It just, you're just aware of what it might lead to. Even if you are careful and conscientious about your conduct around male colleagues, you may still find yourself being asked out for casual coffee or dinner dates by men who are otherwise kind and courteous. That's just a reality in the workplace. But they are nevertheless unbelievers. My advice is to politely decline such requests. Because of what we said in our first question, the relationship you presently have with your work colleague can never go beyond a working relationship. Can you date an unbeliever? No. He may be kind, courteous, great in a lot of ways. If he's an unbeliever, you are in disagreement at the most fundamental level of who you are. Do you want him to become a believer? Yes, just like you want everyone you meet to know the Lord Jesus. 
But to acquiesce to these requests for exclusivity, remember, just that this, the beginnings of exclusivity, even if it's merely the claim to get to know you better, it can lead them on, send the wrong messages, and also tempt you to become entangled in romantic interest with someone with, you, with whom you can never marry. You think that doesn't happen? Oh, it happens. I've seen it happen. And all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're a young lady who longs to be married, and you're, and, and you're being shown attention by kind, gracious, handsome, uh, P90X, you guys, never mind, uh, kind of guy, and, um, and it's, it's nice, and you like it, and you start to think about how you could justify being in a relationship like this, and so you do acquiesce to the request, and slowly over time, now you're entangled because you like this guy for several good reasons, not the ultimate reason, but several good reasons, and now you're entangled, and you what do you do? What do you do? And so I, I just, I think it's important to be very clear at the beginning and be, be wise at the beginning. You should be kind to everyone, respectful and courteous. Endorn your life with godliness so that the gospel itself shines, the, the power of the gospel shines through you. So this is never a, a call for women to be rude, but you do want to be careful uh, of exclusivity because exclusivity is meant to lead to relational intimacy. intimacy. Okay. How do I interact with unbelieving women at work? Similar things to what we just said, but as a man, you must be careful that you're not presenting yourself to female colleagues in a way that makes it appear as though you have romantic, romantic interest in them. This can be easy, especially if you're kind of a gregarious, nice, humorous, life of the party kind of person. You have to be careful of how you are presenting yourself. Again, you're to be courteous, respectful, and kind to female colleagues. Some of us guys who desire to be godly think that avoidance and just looking down and not acknowledging women is, gonna, is the right way to, to conduct ourselves. It's not. It's immature, actually. The godly man is able to conduct himself in a way that's kind, courteous, respectful, honors the woman as the woman, but who nevertheless is careful to not lead them on that there's some romantic interests. Now, obviously, you can't control people's, every person's affection, and that's not your job. But as much as it depends on you, you are to conduct yourself in a way that doesn't lead ladies on. You're not to avoid them or refuse to talk to them. And you should also, I think it's just natural for a guy to feel a, an appropriate sense of general protection for your female colleagues. If you're at work and you've got a lot of female colleagues and in, you, you, you guys probably even have in your work environment, you probably had situations where you're, you're told what to do and there's an, an intruder or a, um, these kinds of things. And if you just kind of naturally th think that it's your role to uh, protect the ladies among you, that's good, okay? Because that's what, the way God has created us men in relation to women. So you, you, to feel that sense of general protection for your female colleagues is a good thing, but you want to be careful that you're not flirtatious or giving anyone the impression that you're romantically interested. Number seven, what role does the church play in a dating relationship? We talked about this already a little bit, but I want to just address it again and to reinforce what we said. The church plays a very important role in dating relationships. Church members provide accountability and wisdom for your dating relationships. The church keeps you from isolating yourself and making hasty, unwise decisions in a corner. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, who can stir you up to love and good works except for the people that know you in that local church setting? 
But the church community must be mature with regard to dating relationships. Couples are not to be an object of gossip. When a couple start to move toward a little bit of exclusivity, then we shouldn't be creating any artificial pressure on the couple by talking about marriage or giggling about so-and-so. Why? Because it adds a kind of pressure onto that relationship. And now this happens in churches where marriage is held in high regard and dating is seen as a means to marriage. But what that does is that can infuse a kind of artificial pressure for those two people so they can't even really get to know each other in a, in a casual kind of environment. So we want to be careful that we are mature in this regard and not giggling uh, like the hallways of so many public high schools, and probably Christian high schools too. Um, let people get to know each other in a low-pressure environment among people whom they know will be there for them when they need it. All right? Let's do that. Let's do that for each other. If you are dating someone from another church, you should involve your good friends at CBC. Not doesn't have to be everybody, but your good friends at CBC for the sake of accountability and wisdom. You should find ways as the relationship matures to involve your boyfriend or girlfriend in the local congregation in ways that won't keep them from being faithful to their uh, current congregation and church. And when a boyfriend or girlfriend visit, you should be warm and inviting, kind, gracious, and hospitable. All right? So that's the role that the church plays in a dating relationship. It plays an important role, a mature role. What about age gaps in, romantic, in a romantic relationship? Again, Scripture doesn't give us any hard and fast rules. It doesn't say uh, up to 20 years and stop. 20 years age gap is just anything past that. Adoram Judson, all of, his wife's all of his wives died, and his third or fourth wife was 40 years younger than he was, I believe. He was 16, she was in her 20s or something like that. Adoram Judson, missionary. Uh, it was a scandal. Um, but Scripture doesn't forbid it. But uh, here's some things to consider. Um, what did I say here? Men, you are free to marry older, uh, young. You're, men, you are free to marry older women. Men, women who are older than you, and women, ladies, you are free to marry men who are younger than you or older than you. There's just Scripture doesn't say. All right. And when you don't have any biblical grounds to say that you can't marry someone who is younger or older, then you should perhaps give them an opportunity. But there are some things to consider about significant age gaps. And so I'm not talking about, I'm almost three years older than Amy. That's not an age gap. Um, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. Austin is seven years older than Emily. That's not a significant age gap. We're talking about, when we're starting to cross the, um, the 10 year, 12, 15, we're getting up there, that you might call that a significant age gap. And as I explain it to you, you might see what I mean why I'm in using those. Those aren't really arbitrary. Um, as you get older, the significance of the age gap becomes more acute. Okay? <laughs> That's just the reality. Uh, it, just may, it may not seem like much now, but it's, it grows more acute over time, doesn't it? especially as it relates to energy and mental acuity. If you're 25 right now and you marry someone who is in their 40s, 
That may not seem like a big deal now, but when you are in their, your 40s and they'll be in their 60s, when they're in, you're in your 50s, they'll be in their 70s. And as you get older, the energy gap lengthens so that there is much greater difference between a 50-year-old and a 7-year-old. So a 50-year-old uh, wife, just as an example, and a 7-year-old husband than there is between a 25-year-old uh, wife and a 40-some-year-old husband. So this is, you just have to be aware of these kinds of issues that when you start to move into those latter years, there's going to be a significant uh, gap in terms of energy and mental acuity once you start hitting that 50, 70 area. You just have to be aware of that. I don't think it's forbidding you. You just need to be aware of that as you're talking to someone perhaps who is, is significantly older than you. We know people, uh, Walt and Nancy Heine down in Mexico. We were friends with them before they moved down there at another church. Uh, Walt is 18 years older than Nancy. They're happily married. Dave and Connie Deal, we know them. He works for Crew, and uh, he is 18 years older than Connie, I believe. We did you confirm it was about 18 years? Nancy is closer. Yes, they're married at 22 and 24. Okay, so 18. Okay. Seem to be happy. Three kids, happily married. So, so it it can happen. It can, it can work, uh, but. As we see now, there you can see you can see it in both couples. There is the 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 span the, the gap is growing as they grow older. So just something to be aware of. That's all. Uh, scripture doesn't be, forbid it, but it's something you do need to be aware of. Number nine. How would you encourage singles to marry when the rate of divorce and separation, even among Christian couples, is so high and frequent? Okay. First of all, we have to say that these stats are different to difficult to interpret because you don't know how they're defining Christian, nor do you know the spiritual background, discipleship, pre-marriage training, post-marriage accountability, or local church setting of these people that are being surveyed. That's the first thing we've got to say. So I don't, I'm not a huge fan of those um, stats. Nevertheless, two of the couples that, uh, that we were good friends with at seminary, and one of whom we were, was a family we spent a lot of time with, are now divorced at seminary. And uh, I just, it, it's still stunning to this day that it, that it happened. We just can't believe it. <laughs> and another one that's on the rocks. It's just, anyways. So, um, but even here you can point to both of these relationships and poten potentially identify foundational problems that led to the divorce. So how do I encourage singles to marry in light of these reality? By doing exactly what we're doing in this series. That's how. By teaching you and discipling you to handle romantic relationships with biblical wisdom, godliness, and integrity, by emphasizing the necessity of the local church, deep fellowship and accountability, solid discipleship, by requiring those... So if you want to get married by any of the pastors at CBC, we require before we will marry you to go through 10, or 10 to 12 weeks. I think I'm 10. I think Cliff is 12. Uh, so that, just let that, let that uh, help you determine who you'll choose. No. Um, 10 to 12 weeks of premarital counseling. And it's intense. Kind Dane are in it right now, and you can ask them how much homework we give them. It's a lot. It takes, takes, we, we span them out each two weeks. We meet every two weeks. It takes about two weeks to complete the homework amidst all the other things you have to do. And the questions are intense. And they unearth a lot of issues that you have. Sin that you have in your own life. Uh, def deficiencies and dysfunctions in the relationship itself. And by week six, 
a lot of stuff has come out, and you're, you're kind of starting to teeter, whoa, should we, should we even do this, right? And once you get back week six, you're, you're very certain, and you're, you're solidified, and it's good, and, uh, and the Lord is blessed because you've gone through this process. But that's what we do here. If you want to get married by a CBC pastor, you go through 10 to 12 weeks of premarital counseling. And we believe this is one of the means by which we help relationships start well so that they will finish well, right? But again, it's dependent on the local church and other things. So for my part, I want CBC couples to remain faithfully and happily married their whole life long. And I just, the stats are discouraging, to be sure. I don't give a lot of credence to them, given what I've mentioned. And then I, for our part, we, we, we work with people so that they will preserve their marriages. And not just preserve them and live in um, convenient a kind of convenient union where there's not much love, but it's more convenient to stay married than to divorce. No, we want couples to be happy and glorify God in their relationship. I mean, the marriage relationship is, is a very delightful experience and a very fruitful experience, and we want people to uh, experience that their whole life long when they're married. How do I get someone to like me? How do I get someone to like me? This is the wrong question. <laughs> So I'm sorry, whoever said that. It's anonymous, so it's all good, right? Ultimately, you can't get someone to like you. God is sovereign even over the affections, isn't he? We, but we need to treat this question from the male side and the female side. Men, I hope this question wasn't asked by a guy. Because it is your role to pursue, woo, and win the woman. If she doesn't appear to have much interest in you, then do what you can to change that situation. But you can ask this question in a way that encourages passivity. You need to seek to be the man that a godly woman would find attractive and appealing. Ladies, this is not your role. You are to pursue godly femininity and faithfulness to Christ, the body of Christ, and the responsibilities that God has clearly given you. You are to pursue an undistracting attractiveness, to be willing to gather corporately with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have an interest in someone, begin with prayer. Tell the Lord of your desires. But the aim of our Christian life shouldn't be to get someone to like us. That should not be the aim. We need to be the kind of person that a godly man or woman should find attractive and allow God and His sovereignty to create the affections. All right? Number 11. Is it important to cultivate a desire for marriage if there is no interest in dating and marriage? My answer to this one is maybe or maybe not. How do you like that? How do you like that hedge? All right, well, <laughs> if you don't have a desire for marriage or dating, we need to ask why. Because Paul indicates that marriage is the normal state for most people, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and following. Speaking to the guys first, you may have the gift of singleness. And you have to consider that as a real possibility. That's a possibility. That's a real thing. You don't have a desire to be married, uh, and you're content with that then just exploit that gift to its fullest and, and, uh, and thank God for that, the freedom to, to serve Him in that way. But here's the key. If you have little desire for dating and marriage, but you are currently addicted to sexual sin and personal sexual, sexual gratification, then it's not as though you don't have a desire for marriage. It's that you're having those desires fulfilled in an illicit way. And so that question needs to be asked. First, we need to remedy the sin and then get those desires moving in the right direction. 
And then ladies, again, if you're presently walking with the Lord in purity and faith in Christ, but you don't have any interest in dating and marriage, you may have the gift of singleness too. That's a possibility. And we don't want to uh, neglect that as a possibility. But, and you want to use that gift uh, to serve God in the way that he's laid out. But it could also be that your desires for marriage need to be awakened by a man's pursuit. That's a possibility. So perhaps you do think you have the gift of singleness. It's possible. But if you have a, a, a man who has interest in you, it could be that your desires need to be awakened by that pursuit. I've seen that happen as well. And perhaps you need to give that a chance. You are free to do what you want, ladies. You're free to marry him, free to not. Okay? If you can, in good conscience, remain single for the, the glory of God, and that's what you want to do, you're free to do that. But also don't forget that it's possible that your desire for marriage could be awakened by the pursuit of someone who is interested in you. What does, sinful, non, what does non-sinful contentment in singleness look like? Number 12. I had to write this down word for word because this is a really challenging question, so I'm just going to read it. Non-sinful contentment in singleness looks like a daily willingness to be satisfied in Christ alone, to be taken up in His will and His work each day, to be willing to set aside the wonder of romance and marriage in this life for for the unimaginable, exquisite pleasures of eternity with God. You may still have desires to to be married, and those desires may never subside. You may be walking in holiness and godliness and have, still have strong desires to be married. It is possible to be satisfied in Christ, yet desire to be married. Okay? I don't want to, we don't want to be cruel with our theology, as though being satisfied in Christ means that you don't have a desire to be married anymore. It's not what Scripture teaches. You may be walking with the Lord, satisfied in Him, and still desire to be married. Nevertheless, contentment is grounded in a willingness, if it is God's will, to forego a temporary earthly good, namely marriage, for an eternal good. Contentment will come as you pursue what Paul tells singles to pursue, undistracted devotion to the Lord, and use the freedom that you have in your singleness to serve the church body and those who are in need. And there are many who are in need. Contentment at this level is a daily fight. It's a daily fight. And I think that's probably where some of of us have gotten disillusioned, thinking that if I just nail it on this Sunday, I won't have to worry about it for the rest of the month. And I think it's a daily fight. You must fight each day to be satisfied in God. Psalm 90, verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may be rejoiced and be glad all our days. In the morning, you're praying that. That's why I say it's a daily thing. But we must not romanticize singleness and the struggle for contentment. It's a battle. We don't want to romanticize it and say that it's some sort of easy thing. Contentment is often hard won. Contentment in Christ is not easy. And there will be hard days, disappointments, sadness, and struggle. But you can find enduring joy and satisfaction in the Lord as you, one, immerse yourself in His Word and prayer, two, pursue regular fellowship and worship in the local body, three, maximize your time for the glory of God. Now I say this mostly to women, what I just read. Because guys, it's your role as we saw to find a wife. If you are single and ready to be married, we talked about you have assurance of salvation, sexual purity, able to provide, grounded in the local church, then go find yourself a wife. 
Pray diligently for a wife. Get together as much as possible with your church and be patient. Don't jump out of relationship because, just because there's the opportunity. But again, for guys too, during the time that you're single, everything I just said about contentment would be applicable to you. Immerse yourself in the Lord's word and prayer. Pursue regular fellowship and maximize your time for the glory of God. Number 13, I am interested in someone. How can I ask them out? Guys, if you're interested in someone, find ways to talk with them. Spend time with them in corporate settings. You guys are just doing this so well. It's just, it's just great to see. I, I, I sense there's just a, a comfortable uh, arena for you to get to know one another. It's a, com a comfortable environment. And I just commend you to keep doing that. This will allow you to get to know the ladies better and allow them to get to know you better in, casual, comfortable, in a casual, comfortable environment. This will make it easier for you to ask them out. Then you need to find a way to ask them, actually ask, ask them out. It's probably best if you two have a bit of privacy so that she can feel free to respond however she wants to respond without potentially embarrassing you in front of a bunch of people. So you don't want to like go up into a group and then ask her out so that she feels pressure to say yes so as not to totally make you look like a fool. That, that would be a little manipulative, guys. So you want to have a little bit of uh, privacy. And uh, make it simple. Would you like to get coffee sometime? Or would you like to go to Harry, the Harry Potter movie next week? It was on a Thursday, yeah. Would you like to go to Harry Potter on Thursday? Was it, we I met, asked I asked you Tuesday. Did, oh, and we went out on the Thursday. So, we, okay, it was a couple, I only had two days to, I had two days to watch the first two Harry Potter movies, <laughs> and then to sketch out our, our date night. And to practice drive the, the date route. Practice drive the date route, that's right. <laughs> ladies, you are probably, ladies, you're probably wondering if you should ever ask a guy out. Again, scripture isn't so much about, concerned about how the relationship begins, but how it proceeds. As a general rule, however, I think it's best if the one taking the initiative is the guy asking the girl out. Guys, you should not be waiting for a girl to ask you out, okay? That would be a passive approach. Okay, I know we're a minute over. Are married couples expected to have kids? I would say generally yes. That's the way Scripture has set it up. And Paul emphasized this in 1 Timothy 5, 10 and following, in Titus 2, 3, that that bearing children is the, and raising children is the expectation uh, in terms of the, the woman's role. And that you see that established in uh, uh, Genesis in terms of being fruitful and multiplying. Not all couples can have children biologically. It's just a reality. And it's cruel to, to put some sort of burden upon them that they must produce children um, in a certain amount. But adoption is always... A wonderful adoption, and I, I do think uh, there are so many there are so many orphans out there that Christian couples who are unable to conceive biologically should consider strongly getting those children to to make them their own. It's a picture of the gospel itself, but then raising them up in a family where they will hear the gospel and be discipled. And then finally, number fifteen: Can someone with the gift of marriage be left unfulfilled, i.e., not married? This was interesting. I didn't doctor this one at all because. I just thought that was interesting, that phrase, the gift of marriage. There's no such thing as the gift of marriage if you're a single. 
You don't have a latent gift of marriage waiting for you to someday be fulfilled. You don't know if you'll be married. And God has never promised you to be married. That is one promise God has not made to you specifically. There's the gift of singleness, and you want to determine if you have that. But you have the gift of marriage once you are married. And this ties into something that I, I want to bring up, and then we'll close with this. Um, I've noticed, especially young, well-intentioned young ladies, you, you have friends, you yourself are single, you have friends who are single, maybe you're recently married, whatever, and you want to encourage your sisters in the Lord. And you might say, say, say something like, the Lord has the perfect man set aside for you. You just need to wait and be patient. And let me just be really clear, that is very unhelpful counsel because it's not true. At least you don't know if it's true. You have no basis on which to say that the Lord has someone picked out for that friend specifically. She may be single her whole life long. God has never promised her a husband. And you don't know the future or the mind of God. So I commend your desire to comfort your sister in Christ. But that is unwise and unhelpful counsel. Rather, help them to cultivate a life of satisfaction in the Lord while they are single. And just be a good friend and, and be willing to spend time with them. But be careful how you're counseling them at this point. Okay? All right. Well, you guys can ask me questions if you want or you can get up and go. It's up to you. We're four minutes over. Um, any, if you go ahead and ask questions, you can ask questions. You can get up and go. But I'll, I'll stay here for a few minutes if you do have questions. There's also Q&A next week. That's right. So you can wait till next week. Yes. Uh, in question two, you asked, you talked about like, uh, online dating and yeah. like, kind of this paradox of choice kind of thing. You quoted something from Proverbs. What was that? Uh, Proverbs 17.24. Uh, again, Proverbs 17.24 is not, on, not about online dating, but it's the principle of the fool is someone who's characterized by, who's always looking out there, always looking out on the horizon, always looking past where he's at, always looking beyond his proximity. And th that apparently is not a character of, of wisdom. It's not a quality of wisdom. Yeah, you're welcome.